This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars— then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. On this episode, I brought on Dr. Ife Williams. She is a historian. She's an activist. She wrote a book called Police Brutality, A Philadelphia Story. And this book opened up a conversation for us I've never been able to have on the podcast because I just never had a guest who was specializing in this. Police brutality, the history of it, how we fight for reform, what does it mean to say, defund the police. We talk about all that and more. Dr. Ife is so wise and just, you can tell she is totally immersed in this work and it was wonderful having her on. So make sure you pick up the book if you're interested in that topic and support her work. You can go to her website. I'll make sure I put a show note or a link in the show note and you can check it out. But this was truly a fascinating and eye-opening conversation and I definitely plan on, on having Dr. Ife back sometime soon. That being said, friends, thanks so much for listening and watching the podcast. We are on YouTube. We are on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure to like and subscribe or follow the show. If you can give us a rating and a review, that'd be so helpful. And if you want to support the work that we do, we are a completely grassroots funded nonprofit organization that holds space for thousands of people, helping them navigate a better way forward in their Christian tradition. And you're donation makes that work possible. That's why we have no paywalls. There's no Patreon account. Every podcast episode you get, every piece of content is available. And the only reason that's possible is because people are generous and donate. All donations in the US are tax deductible. We are financially transparent. You can go to our website and see where all the money goes. We have no secrets. So thank you so much. It means the world. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Ife. Talk to you all later on. All right, friends, um, I got to say, and I know I say this often to all of you, that this is a unique episode or you know a different kind of interview, but maybe that's the norm of this podcast because I, once again, really believe we have a very 
uh, unique interview for the work that we usually do that I think is very important uh, to, to talk to you about. So Dr. Ife Williams, thank you so much for making time. It means the world. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. You wrote a book called Police Brutality, and we're going to be getting into that topic, which I know is a loaded one for a lot of reasons. Before we do, I would love to know just some cliff notes. You know, who is Dr. Ife Williams? What, what is your background and why did you end up writing this book? Well, number one, I'm a Philadelphian. I grew up here and was That's exposed right. <laughs> to everything that happened. I grew up during the 60s and 70s where we had a mm. lot of uh, turmoil with the police. So I was very familiar with the topic. What happened to me was uh, uh, when I was in high school, I wasn't particularly political. A young man was being ushered from the sheriff's bus into City Hall. And he was handcuffed and apparently he tried to run and he was shot in the back in the middle of the afternoon in City Hall Courtyard. And he, he apparently was about my age, about 14, 15 years old. And that that event really shook me. It just it just stayed with me. You know, so by the time I, I, I attended Lincoln University for my undergrad degree. And when I went to Clark Atlanta University and we were asked to give a dissertation topic, it was so easy for me. I said, police brutality mm. in Philadelphia. I wanted to know why, why that happened and why nothing ever happened to the police officers. And we didn't hear anything else about it. So that's what, what started me on this journey. And also in the interim, we had move which we'll talk about also and what had happened to them. So it just, it, it, to me, Philadelphia is just so significant. I know police brutality happens in all the cities, but I thought that Philly is so unique. We had Frank Rizzo. Okay. Of course we had move. We had, uh, we had the Panthers. We had a number of organizations that fought against police brutality. And yet we're still at the same place. What has happened mm. over the last 50 years? So that's what brought me to this topic. You know, I grew up in the middle of New Jersey, so not super far from Philly, um, but obviously very removed from a lot of what was happening at the time. Also, I'm 34. So, you know, I was pretty young when um, a lot of things that you're, I think you're mentioning might have happened. Can you, for the sake of our conversation, can you unpack what MOVE is and what actually happened so we have some context there? Okay. MOVE was a religious. They termed themselves as being a religious group who honor, of course, nature and the creator. And mm. they actually, they were really, Tim, they were really far ahead of their time because they were environmentalists. They were the type of group we need now. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, they right. did. They talked about pollution and, and what's in our food and uh, being healthy and exercising. I mean, this was all part of their protocol. And in fact, mm. their first demonstration was in front of the zoo, Philadelphia Zoo. They protested the caging of animals. And yeah, wow. that's how they started out. And what happened was, and, and one thing I argue in this book is that the police radicalized them. Okay. Hmm. They were arrested between 150 and 500 times between 1970 and 1978. Their bond was just exorbitant. You know, twenty five thousand, thirty thousand. The city tried to to get rid of them. 
through uh, yeah. uh, the monetary means. But what really, um, and, and of course, once they were brought into court, they used that as a stage to, to let their uh, views be known. And they also tried to reach out to the black community and support others in their cases against the police. But that, that didn't really mesh, mesh because by that time, MOVE had been demonized. So there was this gulf between them and the conservative black community. They were like, I don't, you know, mm. I don't want to be a part of, of these. I see what's going on with them, but I don't, I don't want to be associated with this. So what, Got what it. happens in 1976? Key thing. One of the MOVE members was released from prison and he went back to the house. In some places they call it compound for political reasons. And the other mm. members were celebrating in the front yard. Oh, you're back home. And the police use that as an opportunity to attack them. And in the melee, one of the move babies was killed. The baby life was, was crushed. And the police always argued there was no baby. But they had started surveillance of move years before. So they saw on their camera that there was a baby. But, but no, oh, mm. there's no baby. That radicalized move. Between that mm. and being arrested and being beaten, they yeah. just, they just got to the point where it, it's just too much. So right. what they did was they set up a, a a high landing in front of their house. We call it porch protest, and they got out there every day in their military fatigues and and weapons. And what they said that they were protecting themselves, which is constitutionally okay. You know, you can do this. And the police set up around them. Uh, the, the police really had no, no grounds to go in. So what they did was they got them on health code violations. They said, okay, you have uh, rodents in your yard. You have rats. Uh, you have uh, dogs running around. The neighbors are complaining, which the neighbors said, most of the neighbors said they weren't. But they were able to get subpoenas to go in and issue these John Doe, John and Jane Doe warrants to, to get move out. So this was 1978. Wow. And right before wow. that, they the police set up under Rizzo a starvation barricade where they wouldn't let anyone take any food or water into the move house. And you, you have a number of children living there. And this lasted wow. for 55 days. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The human rights, everybody said, yeah, how can you do this? Yeah. They 55 days. And then, uh, uh, I think it was April 78. They decided to go in. Now, while they were going in first, of course, they went into the house and they did, they, they dislodged tear gas. So all the move members moved to the basement. So once they were in the basement, they the police got the fire people to use the deluge guns and spray water into the basement. Gunfire begins. Now there's always a historical question: Who shot first? Was it move? Was it the police? And right. in this, one of the police officers, James Ramps Ramp, gets killed. The first coroner report, which we can't find, but I know existed, I saw it, <laughs> said that the bullet entered his back and exited his chest, which would suggest, of course, friendly fire. Hmm. By the time Move gets to court, 
The coroner says, no, the bullet entered his chest and exited his back. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this becomes very key because then nine move members are charged with uh, first degree murder and given 40 years, nine of them. Wow. Wow. Right. The judge said, well, they say they were a family. They, they want to be charged as a family. <laughs> I'm going to do that. So the move members who are not prosecuted move to another location. Oh, because the entire house was destroyed. So you had no evidence in the case. They were just railroaded. Right. So 19, going up to the 1985 bombing, the other move members uh, uh, relocate to West Philadelphia, six blocks from where I live. And wow. And they started trying to get audience. They they tried to get talk to the mayor, uh, the DA's office, uh, city council. You'll have to do something. You can see that these people were railroad. How are you going to give nine people 40 years for killing one person? And you didn't even prove that they did it. Right. Right. And no one would talk to them. No one would talk to them. So what they did was they built a bunker on top of their house. This is a row house. And they got a bullhorn. And every day they would get out and they would start talking about how bad the city is and why would you want to talk to us? And so the poor neighbors, you know, so loud. But we are right across the street from a park. And every day the move children would go into the park. They would be there playing, whatever. So there were a lot of things that could have happened. Okay, the right. children could have been uh, taken in for truancy or whatever. Negotiations could have been held. Uh, Mayor Good, former Mayor Good, said that yes, he did agree to talk to them. Move said he they never did, and people in his office said he he never he never tried to talk to them. The policy mm. was hands off. No one talked to Move. No one deal with Move. Okay, so yep. so that led to the 1985. Uh, oh, I forgot one thing. 19, 1978. Let's go back to 1978 when Officer Ramp was okay. was killed. Uh, yep. Delbert Africa, one one of one of the the members who just passed, surrendered, came out of out of the basement with his hands in the air, no shirt on, just his jeans. Three police officers come over to him and start beating him. They, they, with their helmet, they knock him down. They drag him across the street by his hair. They're kicking him in his groin and his back and his kidneys. All of this is recorded by the news. So this is your first Rodney King. And now we're looking at cell phones, right. you know, right. all this was recorded. Right. Wow. So what happens is not, it's not Delbert Africa it's really city. They push it. And the three officers are charged with brutality. Come on now. Everybody could see what they're doing. Right. So they go to court. Uh, 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 Mobile Hill, Zagami and Geist go to court and, and their trial. Oh, it's just it's the same thing going on now. You, you, they mm. brought in an all white jury. They demonize mm. move. OK, um, it, everything that they could do to subvert this this case, they did. And, and of yeah. course, the judge stopped the trial and said and, and said the police did their job. They did a wonderful job. And threw the case out. Wow. Now come to 1985. Th- this okay. is a row house. Right? Can I just point out briefly that this is going on for a while? I mean, this is like right. we're at what year seven now? Right. Seven, eight years into this saga. And move sounds like they are I mean, it's almost it's impressive how committed they are to their cause right. to 
have a seven year gap and still be like, now we're going to build a bunker on top of our new house and use a bullhorn to get someone's attention. So I think that that's important to highlight in this story so far. Thank you for that. So it's an alley behind the house. Move cannot exit the front of the house because you have all these police officers. And by the way, the police officers were given carte blanche. Use any weapons you want to use to get them out, right? Right. Only way they could get out is through the back. Who is in the back alley perched on the fence with guns facing the move house? Remember Mulvihill, Geis, and Zagami? Same officers. Wow. And uh, when it came to light, the commissioner said, well, you never told me to handpick the officers. So I just let anybody who wanted to be on duty that day be on that day. And, you know, they had all kinds of resentments. They, I mean, they were taken to the court in charge of brutality. So, totally. Right. A lot of resentment, a lot of this. Un- they feel like they've been targeted, whatever, however, however they feel. They probably feel a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, and probably a lot of hatred, frankly, yeah. as they're do- with guns in their hands now facing towards a house. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And it, wow. and and a coroner report that did find that that uh, the move members that they found in the house had uh, what do they call zero zero gunshot. Hmm. They were actually wow. shot at. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a protracted story, and uh, it's a layered story. But it's so easy to demonize. Uh, uh, people, especially black people. And we see that a lot with police brutality, mm. you know, uh, uh, George Floyd. Uh, oh, you know, well, he made, he was trying to steal something or Michael Brown, they're thieves. And, yeah. and, and that, yeah. and that's somehow, uh, is supposed to justify, uh, uh, killing them. Yeah. Well, I, um, really quick, just to make sure I understand the rest of that move story. You mentioned a bomb happened. Are you saying oh. that, that the place ended up getting bombed oh, at oh. the end of it? I'm not sure if my audience is familiar with like how oh, that story oh, ended. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that, that's okay. I'm, 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 I'm so sucked into this story. I'm like, wait, wait, what actually, I heard the word bomb somewhere. So yeah, yeah, I just want to yes. circle back. Okay. Okay. Let's circle back. So remember I told you that they built a, uh, uh box on top of their house. Yeah, like a bunker, a bunker or something you mentioned. Okay. So this is the police version. Okay. They wanted to dislodge the bunker because they, in their estimation, move members would be in the bunker with guns shooting at them. Right. So they got a helicopter. Oh, and, and this is interesting, Tim. Guess who their consultant was? Daryl Gates from LAPD. The oh, founder boy. of SWAT. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. You, That's a connection I never yeah, knew about, and al- but also noted. Also, you had the FBI. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Uh, so, so this is a federal level, state level, of course, the National Guard and, and the city yeah, all right. involved in this. This is big. Yeah. And so they decide to dislodge it by dropping mm. what they call CRX Tovix, a little. Okay. The here's another one of the officers. The officer in charge of of putting together the detonating uh, device was also involved in mm. in seventy eight. Uh huh. They knew they knew move very well. Right. And yes. he doubled the amount that was needed 
to dislodge on his own. He just felt like, oh, it's not enough. Okay. And a helicopter, okay, put it in a helicopter and it, and it flew over the house. And they saw from the helicopter that there was kerosene on the roof. They saw that, but we're going to drop it anyway. So they drop it and what happens? Fire. Wow. Fire and three blocks. Well, well, it's really two and a half blocks burnt down. And they didn't put the fire out. Uh, the fire commissioner said that he was waiting for the police commissioner to tell him to put the fire out. The police commissioner said, no, well, you're the fire commissioner. You should decide when to, to put it out. And right. it, it was just so much fear. Everybody was saying move had these guns and they were shooting. And, and so the fire, the firemen felt like they wanted to protect their people. Right. So they, they, they didn't use, which they, I mean, deluge guns, you could be almost a block away and put water on something, right. you know, but they, right. but they let, they decided to let the bunker burn. Wow. They let the bunker burn. And this is only the second time in U.S. history that a bomb has been dropped on a black community. The first one was uh, 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh. Uh-huh. They dropped a bomb on, on that community. Mm -hmm. This is the second time. And Were there any any fatalities from, from that? There, I imagine there has to be with oh, yeah. two and a half blocks burning yeah. down. Well, they, they got all of, well, it was like an all day thing. They came early in the morning oh, and got all the neighbors out. So no, the fatality, they all lost their homes. Oh, and one guy had this, wow. this jazz collection from like the 20s, all these LPs. That, that was so sad. They just, they lost everything, everything. The fatalities, of course, were the MOVE members, six adults and five children. Oh, my and God. And the children was 14. I think the oldest child was 14. I, I'm really glad we took some time to kind of flesh out that story because, A, as someone who was homeschooled, I can tell you right now, that did not make it into any of my history <laughs> books and even being aware of that. But also, I think that a lot of people listening, those stories for maybe some communities are like, very they're told over and over and for other people are no clue like wait this actually happened are the, the police dropped a bomb on someone's house with that that had kerosene on the roof that burnt down two and a half blocks and killed women and children so i mean that for a lot of us that is a shocking moment of like holy shit I can't believe like this actually happened. And listen, I'm 15 minutes now from Philly. And I, I have definitely heard whispers of like some kind of bomb thing and like, blah, but I didn't know all the context. I, and none of what you just told me, 90% of it never knew till this moment. And so I think that's important to recognize because people like yourself who are writing these books have such an important story to tell for people to be aware of what's actually happening versus what kind of makes it through drips and drabs, either through hearsay or no pun intended, but like whitewashed media sources, right? Who will try and clean it up or present it as some alternate situation. And I appreciate you telling us that because I think it's very helpful for the rest of our conversation. Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIC preparation and testing along with various 
with certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWHVACTRAININGSC.COM to inquire. Yeah, and, and because of this demonization, most people believe, and they still do, they they still believe, oh, MOVE deserved it. They asked for it. And, and, and let, me, let me tell you how God works. I was at a conference years years ago. One of the MOVE members who was killed has a twin sister. I didn't know this. And I was wow. at this conference, and I'm looking at her. I'm like, wow, you look familiar. And I, I, and, and I, and I talked to her. And and this is something we don't think about when we hear about mass shootings and 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 all how the family recovers from something like this. Totally. And 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 in her mind, her sister brought this on herself. She did this. And I had the opportunity to tell her the story that I just told you, you know. And then we were able to, you know, I mean she just cried and we just prayed. And it just gave her such relief because all this time she was thinking, how could my sister do this? You wow. know, and, and uh, wow. just what are the chances? Seriously. What are, I'm <laughs> what serious. Are this was in Tennessee. Right. I'm living in Philadelphia. Wow. I go to this conference and here this person is. Holy moly. <laughs> Holy moly. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. And I do agree with you. Um, we oftentimes, because just because of I think just the nature of media and social media, we forget the the very big ripple effects from uh, from that that emanate outwards from these situations that affect people for the rest of their life, um, and we forget that you know right now there are people who had kids, had moms, dads who suffered either police brutality and lost their life or were part of a mass shooting who are still living with that absence today. Just because it's out of our media psyche doesn't mean that that somehow it's out of like, it's out of reality, right? It still exists for a lot of people who now have to carry that weight for the rest of their life. So I think that that's a really important point. Yes. I, I thank you for bringing it up. Okay, let's dig a little bit into your book. Now that we have that kind of as the backdrop. And again, thank you, you for taking the time, Dr. Move. <laughs> you started I love it. it. This is why we podcast, right? Long form conversation is key to dig into all the nuance. So I appreciate that. One of my questions I wanted to ask is, you know, this book, um, and you're talking, talking about police brutality. Let's just zoom out of Philadelphia for a second. Why is this a critical issue to address in the broader context of America, of policing in America? Like, like what, what's the bigger issue that's going on here for you? Well, I guess the biggest issue is that people are dying. And just yeah. because and, and just because we don't see it in the news doesn't mean it's still not happening. Yeah. Just this year, right, twenty twenty three alone, over six hundred people have been killed by police. Six hundred. Wow. Wow. Right. These are people who don't make the news. And and, you know, a lot of these things occur at, at night. And 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 Philadelphia has a very interesting uh, way of tracking. They look at the number of times a police have discharged their weapon as separate from how many were killed on the other side of that. You know, mm. and, and we don't mm. see what goes on in the middle of the night and what goes on in once someone has been uh, taken in and incarcerated. So it is it, it is a societal problem. All right. People are, mm. are our entire justice system 
needs to be overhauled. You know, and and yeah. one and one thing that I did is is I couched police brutality within the problems of the justice system. That the act of brutality is is just doesn't is is not in a silo of somebody just being shot on the street. It begins way before that, you know, when we're talking mm. about the the school of prison pipeline, all the way up to yes. the uh to be death penalty, right? You know? And in between being right. in held in prison, and before that, going through the courts. All all of this is a part of brutalization, you know, and the and the police are are are, are a major part of this. And, and, and the bigger issue than that is just societal inequality. You know, I, I looked yeah. it up, Tim. We have over 600,000 homeless people in America. Are you kidding mm. me? 600,000 people. And most of them are right. children. Right? right. And, and, and you can imagine being homeless, the level of mental illness that goes on with that. And then totally. you tell the police that they have to navigate and and deal with these probably societal problems. So of course you're going to have brutality. That how much can they do? You know we're putting an enormous right. task on the police. Yeah. Right. So of course you yeah. you're going to have these problems. So it is, and and this is what uh, Black Lives Matter really push. Until you have some major changes in terms of education, housing, just feeding people. You know, right. you're going to have these problems. You know, it's it's yeah. not it's not uh what, what they call one officer. We're going to go after this one officer and prosecute him. Right. No, it it, it is and it isn't that one officer. It's right. a societal right. problem. Yeah, I I'm thinking about uh, Michelle Alexander's mm -hmm. book, The New Jim Crow. Yes. You know, uh, um, important read for anyone who wants to get up to speed here, especially on the on the criminal justice system and the problems there. And you, I think you're right. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because I think my upbringing, the way I was taught was like, when it comes to these issues, they're just all siloed, right? It's one bad apple in the bunch. It's a one-off situation. It doesn't speak for the whole. But as I'm just like rethinking my own way of seeing the world and listening to other voices outside of how I grew up, I'm more convinced that no, we're all interconnected. And like these things, they, they, it's like, you know, if you have a bunch of strings in a room all crisscrossing and you, you pluck one, it kind of affects the other and they have, they kind of, you know, ripple down. It's like that kind of idea of like these things have bigger impact than just the, the one off thing. They're not happening in a vacuum. And I agree with you. I, I'm more persuaded than ever that, you know, police brutality can't be solved if we're not addressing the poverty issue the lack of 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 access to affordable health care for most people the 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 still very existent wage gap right uh that we see i mean i read some data i think it was uh, a couple months ago that 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 the average um either bipoc or single parent worker makes 15 dollars an hour that's the average wage if you are uh, someone in the black community or if you're a single parent and i'm like you know we live in 2023 you know that like everything is crazy high. You can't find anything affordable. You think $15 an hour is really going to like put food on the table for you and your family. And it's frustrating because again, just talking about my experience where I grew up and how I grew up, the answers that I've been given are totally insufficient. Well, just work harder. Just get another job. Just put yourself through college. Just do this. Just do that. You can't rely, rely on the nanny state. And it's like, 
We're not talking about a nanny state. We're talking about helping people who are in need because it truly does take a village to raise a child. Like, it does. I have two kids, Dr. Ife, under three. If my in-laws weren't down the street, if my parents weren't available, I don't know how me and my partner would do half of the things that we do because sometimes we just need help with our kids, right? So I can I can see how if you're by yourself, if you're a single parent trying to make things work, right, for your kids and for having a roof over your head, why alternative means of finding income are attractive because you got to do whatever you got to do to put food on the table. And that, I think, repeats that cycle of chaos and violence that we're talking about that ends up with a police force that's looking for those criminals, quote unquote, right, to punish them. And here we are. We have this cycle. Right. And rant. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> you got, right. You got me all stirred up. You're you know, <laughs> two people in America making minimum wage cannot afford an apartment. Right. Right. Oh my goodness. Uh, I know we're not talking about, about economics, but it is tied into that 100. percent So, uh, okay, maybe. So we have some broader issues here. Let's get back more to Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, um, you know, you mentioned that that the um, and this is important to me because. You mentioned in the book uh, that that the police department in Philadelphia, at least, has really evaded or eluded reform, right? And I'm thinking about um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Then I remember hearing there was a kind of a push on social media to fund the, the police, right? We want to fund the police. And I would like you to maybe unpack what that means because I think uh, bad faith actors took that and just made it something it perhaps was not. And then can we talk about also, yeah, like why is it so hard to get reform done? I, You mentioned this. You're like, hey, since the 70s, we've been talking about this stuff since the 60s. And here we are in 2023. And like, I think your take so far that I can hear is not much has really changed. And that's very frustrating. So the floor is yours. What are your thoughts on this? Tim, that's about four questions. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I do that all the time. I'm sorry. I know. Let's start here. How has the Philadelphia Police Department eluded reform attempts? Well, I think the bigger the, the bigger picture is the law and order narrative. Okay. And once you get the, the citizens to buy into that and support that, it's very easy for the police to argue, oh, you know, we're just doing our job. There's too many criminals. Even now, you know, Philadelphia is leading in a number of homicides. We've had over 500. So, you know, the police, know. Oh, we're doing our job. We, we just, you know, just have to do that. So you, it, in context, it's hard. Well, why are you trying to, to change us? And, it, it, and it's interesting that those places that did defund, <laughs> they went back. <laughs> they they took that money back after a short time yeah. based on the issue of crime. You know, it's okay. We took right. this money from the police and it, it actually is just redirecting money like from the police to education or from the police to, to social services. Uh, but, but that money has returned. In uh, Philadelphia, I, I, I don't want to tell you this little piece. Uh, Philadelphia had one of the first major um moves against the police to, in terms of reform, they had in 1918, the Colored Protective Service, CPS. And they actually took police to court and they made up little cards and they gave these cards out. So when the police stopped you and harassed you, you could show them the card and tell the, so the police would know that the CPS is, is behind you. <laughs> yeah, wow. this is 1918. Shoot. This is how long we've been dealing okay. with this thing. And Over a yes, hundred years. 
Yes. And the CPS did take uh, police officers uh, to court. And, 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 and one major problem they had was, of course, finding somebody who would testify against the police. You only had a few black officers. In one case, this case I love, the, the police officer had beat this black man so bad that they had to take him to the hospital. Once they get him to the hospital, the same police officer jumps on a gurney and starts beating him again. What? So a black officer sees this. So this case is one of the first cases that the CPS takes to court, but the black officer wouldn't testify, said, I I didn't see anything, you know? So, so in terms of reform, everybody first wants to look at the courts, but there's so many loopholes, you know, just, just from primarily just getting somebody to testify as a witness, you know, you're afraid. You know? Right. Uh, and, right. And, and then your judges and, and then and who's going to prosecute? You you have your district attorney. You're putting them in, in, in a precarious situation. Your district attorney's office depends on the police. You know, for all their cases right. to get their information to prosecute. Now you want that same right. entity to prosecute a police officer. What, what, right. what are you doing here? You know, that's complicated. it's very complicated. And, and, and city of Philadelphia was the first to come up with a civilian review board, 1958, first city. And, and actually 2020, we just got another one. However, you know, uh, after that Rizzo comes into office, we have this personality and eventually they get rid of the civilian review. You know, Mm. we, we don't want that. Mm. The major bulwark to reform is a fraternal order police. Hmm. The FOP, they're not even a union. They're not a union. They're an association. Yeah, well, they're they? an association. Association. They're okay. not a union. And what they want is, of course, is more money for, for their officers and, and they want autonomy. They want to be uh, politically autonomous. They don't they don't want the, the, the city, anybody giving them any type of regulations and they'll fight against hmm. them. Tooth and nail, you know, hmm. and so they they are the they they are are a major foe here in terms of reform, and in terms of defunding. I would like to say you you you're not you're kind of close to Camden, New Jersey. I use Camden. I am. I use yeah, Camden as an example. They. I was going to ask yeah, you about Camden. I'm glad you brought it up. They okay, technically great. Technically defunded, and and uh, they fired all their police officers, and then they hired them right back and made them go through some training. And actually what they did was they took their money, they took some of their money and put it into community programs. So now they have cookouts and different things for trying to, trying to get that relief. Right. And they put the rest of the money into technology. So, so now, I mean, everywhere, the cameras everywhere, just watching Yeah. the whole, everybody, you know, but the funding is, is really just shifting the money. And, and like we talked about before, all the social ills with education, housing, <laughs> I think it was interesting. Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter Philadelphia said, why don't we take some of the money from the police and remove the asbestos from the schools? Right. You know, that would mm. have been basic instead of closing three or four public schools. Right. You know? And, 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 and thanks to Rizzo, he has the city budget t- t- hemmed up. The average police officer gets $1.2 million as a pension. So you, you mm. multiply that. We have an average of 600 police officers. They just hired a lot more. 
This is what we're what when what what the fifth poorest city in in the nation. Yet we're we're giving each officer one point two million dollars, and some of Mm. these officers are (laughs) what the social activists call repeat offenders. Mm. These officers Mm. have not maybe not killed somebody, but have a history of brutality or 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 some type of ethical problem, and it's not even on their record. It gets when when they go up to be reviewed their past transgression is not even taken into consideration right and and so most of what they'll get is oh you need to go to counseling they get counseling right right um man yeah i i what you're saying is i think a lot of people listening i'm one of them is just like wow i mean this is clearly a complicated web and everything's connected to each other. It feels like it's all on like a hair trigger, you know, like if you touch one thing, the other thing goes, if you affect this, it affects this. And I think one of the questions I'm often thinking about, and I would love your expertise and your wisdom here is, yeah. So what are the, like, if I was like Dr. Ife, here you go, full power in Philadelphia, right? You got the key to the city. What do you want to start like, what are some of the answers to how we address this? Because I, I'm with you. I know that that Philadelphia is at a record high for homicides, including children. Like some of the stories I've read are just absolutely tragic. And I think uh, last Thanksgiving, someone died in their home from a stray bullet while trying to eat a turkey dinner, right, in Philadelphia. And I, I'm, I'm 15 minutes from Philly. I love Philly. I'm, a, you know, I'm there often. And and it's like, okay, obviously, like we need some people somewhere to stop. Or to try to like be, you know, to uh, make sure that bad things aren't happening, people aren't getting robbed, and etc. Um, but also, this current iteration of what we call the police sounds really problematic, and there's probably, in fact, I know there's a lot of racism involved and a lot of just other things involved. So we obviously need people, of course, to be some form of like you know law enforcement to a degree. But it seems like too. Mental health plays a role, poverty plays a role, et cetera. So for you, for you, do you talk about in the book like some ways to start addressing this on like a systemic you know, level of like, okay, here's what we could think about to try and reform this stuff that would promote human flourishing in our city instead of almost rubbing more salt in the wound, it seems like. No, I don't really talk about that too much, but I have an opinion. <laughs> I would love to hear it. You know, every time I hear about a kid shooting another kid, it, it, it's it's very simple for me. Hmm. They don't have anything to do. Hmm. We have very few parks, recreation activities, the money for music, the money for uh, sports has all been taken away from our schools. The kids don't have they don't have any extracurricular activities. The city now is undergoing a process where they have grants that they give to groups to come up with these things. And Tim, this is historical. Let me just take you back to 1900, the middle 1850s, when you have all your immigrants coming into to the cities. Okay, and then on the other hand, you have okay by the end of slavery, you have a number. Well, even during slavery, you have a number of blacks coming into the city. Okay, so in the 1900s, and this is a global phenomenon, there is a push to move to have this thing called whiteness. What you want to do is merge all your groups, your Germans, your Italians, everybody. Let's just have one white group. And the first time 
the term is used as like in 1661. I mean, this was an effort. By the time you get to the 1850s, you have all these immigrants coming in. They're fighting each other left and right. Philadelphia is horrible, uh, but we got to get rid of that. So we need to pull them together under one umbrella of whiteness. All right. By the mid 1900s, you have these programs that are set up that give the white population access to jobs, to housing, and most important, the people minimize this, but recreation, recreation mm. is very, very important. Swimming pools, uh, baseball, all right. different kinds of clubs. You're pouring this money into these communities. So of course these people are able to get houses, right? And, and which is the source of wealth, right? They're getting education. Well, what happens to the black community at the same time? What you're saying to the black community is, well, your problems stem inherently from biology. You are inherently yes. criminal from slavery, right? Right. And then when the biology argument kind of wears out, then they go to culture. Oh, you know, you, you're just culturally criminal and inferior. So those resources are denied to the black community. They do not get help with housing, with education, with recreation. And even the very right. few pools that were set up for black people, the white people wouldn't even let the black people go into their own pools. The black people are constantly attacking the black community. All right. You have a number of riots. When we say riot up to 1960, we're talking about whites coming into black communities and attacking them. All right. Yep. So let's jump ahead to 2023. We're dealing with the same thing. These kids, they don't have anything mm. to do. How does, how, how, can you wrap your mind around a fourth grader dropping out of school? We have fourth graders dropping out of schools, mm. right? They can't relate to the curriculum. They're, they're seen as hyperactive. They have problems and Right. You, you know, you try to get string them up on, on Ritalin and other types of drugs. And, and, and like, yeah. I'm not. So when we talk about the, the school to prison pipeline, we're serious here. Yeah. 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 So. So, yeah, my, I, 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 the the focus really should be on young people right now. We need to save them. Because I mean, it, yeah. it's ridiculous how many how many young people are just dying, and it's a two part story. It's not only the one who gets killed by the bullet of another young person; it's that other young person who is now incarcerated for life. They're going to yeah. spend their rest of their life in in, in jails and prisons. So, you know, it, it it is a societal problem. It can be addressed, but like I said, people, I, I really have hope in this generation to kind of wake up and, and, and get involved. I, I was this black lives matter movement. We can't underestimate the importance of that. And the young people that mm. pulled out and, and support, we would not have the few reforms, even though the reforms we have now are very questionable, we wouldn't have them if it hadn't have been for the black mm. lives matter movement. So, mm. uh, yeah, so we need, um, we need young, young people to, to really grasp what is going on and take a stand. 
what reforms then you mentioned that that a second ago here there could be there were some reforms that might be questionable but they were thanks to black lives matter and people really stepping up what are those reforms and what are the questions you have around them oh there are a lot of reforms <laughs> there were two there are two levels of reforms you have your michael brown reforms mm. and then you have your george floyd reforms you also have your mm. sandra bland reforms okay so they basically look at the, what happened around the killing, like the chokehold. Yeah. So, well, well, Philadelphia had banned chokeholds long before, but but this is interesting. Many places ban chokeholds, but they haven't banned what they call cartoid holes. Well, what's the difference between a chokehold and a cartoid? I have no idea. There isn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trick question. There isn't yeah, one. one. Noted. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just uh, with Sandra Bland, you know, you know, you you have to have a warrant. You have to know where you're going. You have to have more information. What happens with police reform is, and it's almost like on uh, any job that you're on, you have the administration up here. And the administration yeah. had comes up with all these rules and regulations. How much of that trickles yeah. down? Right. Right. I mean, you know, right. I was in New York and I was asking an officer, one of the reforms they came up with, which, which I think is, is positive is, well, any reform is positive, but hmm. they would, when someone sues the police, instead of the city paying for it, would charge the officer and have the officer pay for it. Okay, so they're trying that in New York, New York's first city that's that's trying this. Well, after they implemented this policy, I don't know how long it was. I was in New York and I, I talked to a police officer. They had no idea that the policy existed. Oh, they boy. never heard. What are you what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so how much goes here and how much do the police officers know? Right. So you can have all types of legislation. Uh, one thing I do in the book, I talk about the U.S. versus Philadelphia suit and the Rizzo v. Good. The Rizzo v. Good mm. holds the administration accountable for police brutality, which I think is key. I think that needs to be revised because if you saw, it's just like a principal of the school. If you if the if the students don't test well, what happens to the principal? You get rid of them. It's right. just like a, a right. football team. What happens when the football team loses games? What's the first thing you do? You get rid of the coach. Right. 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 So right. I, I think that's something that could be really instituted that would, would be effective because then that would force the administration to really deal with yeah. the officers and really seek ways to prevent uh, things from happening. One of the things that was interesting to me that I, and I would maybe just like your um, if you think I'm, I'm thinking correctly or not, and feel free to push back, of course. Um, you know, I read um, recently that, you know, as far as I, I was not aware that, that there's really no like standardized police training nationally. It's really down, I think, to the state or even precinct and sometimes. And and also the amount of training, I think it's like less than six months overall, including like in some cases, like, like two days of firearm training or something like that. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, in any other profession, especially a specialized profession, like a lawyer or getting your PhD, like you have a lot more training and, 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 um, you know, knowledge before you, you are awarded your PhD or you're awarded the ability to practice law, but we're giving people with guns 
like less than six months of training and saying, well, good luck. Um, good luck enforcing the law that, that, that lawyers spend years trying to understand. Do you think that, I mean, if, if there was a federalized or whatever, like more training and it was more of a, like a special where you had to get your master's degree in something before you can actually, you know, be on the force. Do you think that would be part of the solution or just kind of like not really help any of the problems that we're seeing today? I think it would help. Yeah. We have over 18,000 police units in this country. 18,000. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot. And they have been given by the federal government over $6 billion. $6 billion. <sighs> You know how many people we could have fed? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot of people. Right? A lot of people. And most of the money, wow. you know, they can spend it any way they want. They, you know, they, they, they buy tanks and all kinds of equipment. I mean, they have a war mentality, us against them. Yeah. And I think a major part of reform is changing the nature of policing. When did police go from protecting and serving to being a militarized force against the community? Right. When did they cross that line there? We need to go right. back to what well, protect and serve, you know, and, and that goes right. back to that defunding some of that money. You know, people say, oh, you can't take that money from the police. Six billion dollars. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, the structure of of policing, you know, yes, they need more training. You're talking about especially Philadelphia, a high school diploma or equivalent in and a high school diploma today is not the same as it was in 1960, 1970. You know, the quality of our education right. you know, has, has really changed, deteriorated for the most part. But yeah, professionalization, that's something that they have tried. But again, you're talking about a societal problem. You're talking about, right. and, 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 and seeing in the book, and I, I couldn't really push this, but I wanted to, is that we live in a culture of violence and racism. And and that's why I was looking at some of the attacks by the white community on the black community in the 1900s. Mm. Well, 1985 in Philadelphia, we had a uh, mixed race couple move. That again, not too far from me here in West Philly. And what happens? An all white neighborhood. This is 1985. This is right before the, the uh, right after the move. Wow. The white community came out and attacked them, threw rocks and bricks at their house. Yes. Wow. This is 1985. The mayor had to declare a state of emergency. No one was arrested. The white police just, Whoa. no one was arrested. People had to move. Fear of their life, 1985. And and what people argue is, okay, because of what the police did to move, you, oh, you can just pull out arms, you can just bomb them, that it legitimated violence in everybody's mind. Mm. You know? So I'm, I'm giving you a long answer to a short question. Yes, it is. It, the problem is layered, but things can be done yeah. on each level. Well, I'm even thinking about the uh, Tulsa race mm -hmm. massacre, right? And yeah, I think sometimes, and I'm, I've been so guilty of this, especially being younger, where I said, that was so long ago. And then you read in the news that actually there are still survivors right. today who are trying to seek justice, who just got shot down by the Supreme Court in their, in their state. Uh, and you're like, 
right. This is not nearly, first off, A, as far removed as, as we think, right. and B, it's still happening. I mean, I know, I'm sure you're aware of the viral video of what happened in Alabama, right? That, you know, where, you know, with, with the white chair and, and people made him, you know, whatever. But like, it does show though that, like, no, this stuff still happens even today where there are these situations, you know, that are clearly, at least from where, where I'm sitting, like motivated by a racial prejudice of some kind. That, that that continues over. And I think that is what personally I have a uh, I struggle with is like I, I I'm I'm becoming more and more aware of how deep seated these things are, how redlining still affects people, um, how, you know, um, the, how the wealth gap was affected because of of taking away the wealth that people, especially in the black community, you know, uh, accrued, um, the, the prop, the consequence of the war on drugs, right. in the Nixon era, which was really a dog whistle, right. For mass incarceration of, of, of black men, et cetera. And you're like, right. Those things all still are felt today in communities. Right. And it's, it feels to me so often like, okay, how do we heal this like how how do we undo or not we, i'm not sure if we can undo but like how how do we get to a place where we look back and say i can't believe that was a time you know like we're actually you know healed and there's equity now and man the more i think about it, the more i'm like there's just so many layers that have to be undone or things dismantled to get to that point but they seem like they're so strong and you have this right-wing media empire that espouses these points. I mean, you mentioned George Floyd earlier and the dehumanization of him. Absolutely. You're talking to someone who was sent those talking points by pastors that I knew. Well, Tim, maybe you just don't know the full story. He was a criminal. I'm like, this dehumanization of George Floyd is just an excuse for you not to face the facts of what actually happened. And you're calling yourself a pastor, right? So I think a lot of people that you're talking to, and I, again, I'm one of them, are like, yeah, like you are, you're right on the money. And on on my side, I'm like, I was unintentionally, but still complicit in that world, not knowing what I was even a part of. And now that my eyes are open to it, it's like, shit, like it's really problematic over there, you know, and it still exists in these systems today. So I absolutely feel that for sure. But I struggle with like how to, how to, you know, how to be part of the solution now and not so much the problem, frankly. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems overwhelming. It seems like, oh, it's so many problems, so many things going on. But one thing we have to keep in mind, every social movement yeah. that we've had in the past was not was not led by the masses. Hmm. It was always a few. Yeah, hmm. You can look at the marches in the 60s or even Black Lives Matter. You see all these people. OK, yeah, they show out. But, you know, behind the scenes and, and pushing the legislation and watching what uh, is going on in cities, all that's taking place by a, a few people. Hmm. I really have hope. I really like the World Social Forum. World Social Forum is a group of young people your age who protest all different kinds of issues. And they meet yearly, globally. And they're very conscious. They educate them, each other on what's going on. I think it should happen on a number of levels. Hmm. And my own faith, I, what, what, what did you use? Your theological paradigms? Yes. You know, and, 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 and I wonder, you know, I, I, I really don't know how black people are still alive. I really don't know. Hmm. You know, when I look at slavery, the the slave trade, Jim Crow, and I'm like, how are we still surviving? You know? And yeah. I asked, you know, yeah. God, why, you know, 
why is this going on? Why is this happening? I think first on an individual level is like you're saying, facing your theological paradigm. You know, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose? What can I do? And then instead of looking at everything that's wrong, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what can I do? What, what can I focus on? What, you know, in, in my own home, am I, Am I part of the violence? Am I part of dysfunctionalism? Am I part of miseducating my children and my family members? You know, right. I'm listening to I'm listening to Fox all day long and I'm sprouting mm. these words. What am I doing? What are you know, just like you said, what are what are my boundaries? What am I what's my belief? And then deciding what can I do as an individual to make a change? I mean, Sunday school, something on my block. Um growing vegetables and and taking it to the people who don't have food. There's so many things that we can do as individuals. We know some, we go to the market, somebody's trying to pay for their groceries in front of us. They're $10 short. Do we say, they they shouldn't have put all, I see they have cookies in there. They could have left those cookies. Or do we take $10 out and just pay it? You know, know, so becoming more human within ourselves and then extending that love to others. Because I think that, I think that is the purpose of faith and understanding that there are a lot of, of challenges out here that's going to question that and pull us off that center. But we have to, we have to be centered and, and what we can do and what type of legacy are we going to leave? We're not going to be here forever. What are we going to leave? You know, who can we help? Yeah. 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 I think that's really powerful. If anyone is out there listening and they want to get maybe more involved in like an activist level, are there any organizations you mentioned the World Social Forum, Forum yes. I believe is what mm-hmm. you said. Uh, any other ones that you recommend for people to maybe get more involved that might be have some local chapters in their state to just to help push things forward as we, you know, fight for reform in a, in a healthier society? ACLU, NAACP, okay. you know, all of these groups. Um even people in Philadelphia, we have Phil Abundance, and I know I know every place has an organization like Phil Abundance that um, feeds the feeds the community. Mm. You know, um, a, a, a lot of churches and all. I mean, that's my favorite. I can't. I, the thought of people not eating and, and children going to bed hungry yeah. in this country just yeah. just uh, uh, unnerves me. But to find, yeah. you know. What what organizations? Plenty of them. The Red Cross, uh, with all these disasters, with global warming, oh, the Red yeah. Cross is begging for money and blood and whatever else you can get, literally blood, right. Um, right. Uh, to to help out. And when these disasters happen, and especially like you said, the response of the pastors, when when you hear people coming from a, a place that that's just anti-human you know how can you say that that demon I, well right what what did they did what did they do they must have done something you know is right. is to to be that voice that no you know this has happened for a reason you know mm. a global warming just didn't happen right, <laughs> right. it has roots yes that is correct absolutely right. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ife, I really appreciate your time and, you know, just helping us understand better what's going on and how to understand 
not only police brutality, but also how we fight for reform and make the world better. Do you have like a public presence? Are you on social media? Can people follow you for more information if they want to? Or are you more of a private person? Well, oh, I just got a web page, <laughs> Dr. Ife. Oh, great. <laughs> Dr. Ife Williams com. Yes, yes. So I, I'll send people uh, there. And when does the book come out? The book is out. Oh, okay, great. It's available, Amazon, all that good stuff. There it is. I love it. I'll make sure to put a link in our show notes so people can buy it if they want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Amazon and Lexington, uh, Lexington Rome, uh, Roman Martin, Lexington Press. Yes, it's available. So I want to thank I you it. and I want to thank your listeners for, for even taking the time. A lot of people don't you know, want to hear about the social inequities of our, our system. Mm. And that is a major step. That in and of itself is it being open yeah. and listening and wanting to learn about it is is revolutionary within itself, and you and you shouldn't underestimate uh, what you do. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have shared this time with you, Tim. Yes, likewise. And my platform is always open to you. If you ever want to come back and talk about something else, All shoot right. me an email. And we'll make All it happen. Right. I think that I just think you're you're incredibly wise, and and you just it's evident that that you're passionate about this, and we always try and push voices out there from people like yourself who are experts in this thing and can really speak to it better than I can. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. <laughs>